The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and the very beginning of the book records Jesus ascending into heaven. He died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and then ascends into heaven before the very eyes of his disciples. And it must have been an incredible sight to see. And yet, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't take his disciples with him? Like, why did he just leave them there? in a world where he knew they would face almost constant opposition and even persecution. And the same might be asked of us as well. Like, why doesn't Jesus immediately take us up to heaven when we become Christians? Why does he leave us here in a world filled with so much suffering and sorrow and heartache and pain? There's only one answer to that question, and it's actually given to us very clearly in Acts 1.8. This is the most important verse in Acts because it sets the stage for everything else we read throughout the whole rest of the book. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he explains to his disciples why he's not taking them with him. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's why Jesus left them behind for that one reason, so that they could be his witnesses in Jerusalem, the surrounding regions, and then to the ends of the earth even. And he expected them to devote themselves to that mission and to make that mission the singular focus of their lives. And even though it's been nearly 2,000 years since the words of Acts 1-8 were spoken, nothing's really changed in the expectations or the calling that God has for his people. God calls us to be just as devoted to that mission as the Christians we read about in the book of Acts. That's why we're here. And yet I'm sure that many of you know, as well as I do, that it's so easy for us to lose focus of that mission, isn't it? Kind of like when you maybe go into a certain room of your house in order to do something, but then you get into that room, you get distracted with something else, and for the life of you, you just can't remember whatever, what that thing was that you first walked into the room to do. That's pretty annoying. Or maybe you could compare it to a series of memes that have been popular on the internet with the caption, you had one job, um, such as uh, this one with uh, the mispainted lines on the road, right? You had one job. Or uh, maybe this one with uh, the backwards billboard. (laughs) Or perhaps this one with uh, the word so cool 
on the road. Oh, they need to, they need more of that, right? So in all these cases, plus, you know, probably many others you could find on a quick internet search, the person had one job, but they apparently weren't able to do it very well. And sometimes I imagine God up there in heaven thinking something similar about us whenever we struggle to focus on the mission he's given to us. Like you had one job and you're getting distracted with all these other things. And it's true, right? How easy it is for us as individuals to get distracted by the comforts and concerns of this world and even for churches to get distracted with various things. Perhaps putting all of their focus on programs that have little discernible value or maybe on buildings that are never fully utilized as a tool for the kingdom. Man, it is so easy to get sidetracked. And that's why we need to be reminded again and again of the reason why we're here. And that's exactly the kind of reminder we find in our main passage of Scripture this morning, Acts 3, 1 through 26. In this chapter, we find Peter and John being faithful to the mission that Jesus had given them back in Acts 1, 8 of being his witnesses. And we see what being a faithful witness involves. Being a faithful witness involves both showing the power of God and sharing the gospel of God. That's the main idea that arises from Acts 3. Being a faithful witness involves both showing the power of God and sharing the gospel of God. And as we're going to see, those two things work together in a beautiful way. So let's take a closer look at those two components of being a faithful witness as we see them in this passage. First, we see Peter and John showing the power of God in verses 1 through 10. The text records how Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which was about three in the afternoon. This was the most popular of the three prayer times that took place each day in the temple, since it was also the hour of the evening sacrifice. And so the temple crowds at this hour would have been at their peak. And a man, it says, lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this guy was lame from birth, it says. His condition wasn't a recent development that might have left more hope for recovery, but rather something that had afflicted him even from birth. In other words, his case humanly speaking, was pretty much hopeless. Then, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 
And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter tells this guy to walk and he doesn't just get up slowly and stumble around and trip over himself, right? The way we might typically expect someone to do who's never walked before. Instead, what does he do? He leaps up and immediately starts to walk as if he's been doing it his whole life. This was an incredible occurrence that could have only happened by the power of God. And the reason God did this was to establish the credibility of the gospel message. Just like in the ministry of Jesus, right? We find Jesus frequently appealing to people to believe in him on the basis of the miracles that he performed. He states in John 10, 25, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. That was their function. He also challenges Philip in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. And likewise in Acts, the miracles that God does through the apostles, such as here in Acts 3 and numerous other places are intended to demonstrate the truth of the gospel message that they're proclaiming. And it's natural for us to wonder at this point whether such miracles still happen today. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to explore that question in detail, but the short answer is yes, with about a dozen caveats after it. Uh, one important caveat is that there are many fraudulent miracles that rely on various forms of psychological manipulation. Also, there are many purported miracles that uh, are actually performed by the power of demons rather than the power of God. We see this happening in the Bible. Uh, in Exodus 7 and 8, for example, we read that Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform certain false miracles. Also, in Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer was a local celebrity among the people of Samaria for the magic that he demonstrated. And then finally, the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that we should expect a man of sin to come in the future, referred to elsewhere as the Antichrist, who will come, quote, with all power and false signs and wonders. Right? So how then do we know if a miracle worker is genuine or not? Well, two things, their teaching and their character. First, are they teaching sound theology? Not that we have to agree with every single point of doctrine, but are they at least teaching sound theology in all of the areas that are directly connected to the gospel? such as who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf and how we can benefit from that. Also, secondly, do they exhibit godly character? In the Bible, ungodly character is always linked with false teachers. 
Jesus states in Matthew 7, 15 and 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, right? Not by their charisma, but by their fruits. Now, if someone's very famous, it may be difficult to evaluate their fruits since you don't really know the person, right? So you don't know what they're like behind closed doors. You certainly don't know what scandalous sins they might be hiding. But one example of a character issue that you can look for from a distance is greed. Do they seem to exhibit an unhealthy interest in earthly wealth and prosperity? Are they living a life of excessive luxury? You know, 1 Timothy 6 teaches that there's a very strong link between false teachers and the sin of greed specifically. Paul says that false teachers are constantly, quote, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then he spends most of the rest of the chapter warning Timothy about greed leading people to depart from sound doctrine. So if you see someone today who claims to be a miracle worker getting rich off of their ministry, well, honestly, common sense should probably be enough to tell you that there's something not right there. But even beyond common sense, uh, the Bible actually gives us very specific warnings about such people. Greed is a huge red flag, biblically speaking, that someone is a false teacher and a charlatan. And so is it possible for miracles to happen today? Yes, but I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard of a famous miracle worker that seemed to be anywhere close to legitimate. Uh, I'm not sure if I've heard of a single one that passed the sniff test, if you will. All of the miracles that I've heard about that seemed like they might be legitimate came in response just to ordinary Christians praying for a miracle in their lives. Maybe an ordinary Christian just offers an ordinary prayer for God to, to heal somebody that they know or intervene in a certain miraculous way. And yet one connection that I don't want us to miss from this passage is that regardless of ever, whether God ever chooses to use us to accomplish a miracle, we're still called to show the supernatural power of God. That's part of being a faithful witness. And the way we most often demonstrate the supernatural power of God is in our lives. Is there something supernatural about your life? You know, from what I've observed in the vast majority of cases, people need to see something supernatural in our lives before they're willing to listen to anything we have to say about Jesus. So is there something about your life, your conduct, your attitude, your manner of living that can only be described as supernatural? And there are two things in particular that come to mind as examples of what I'm talking about. The first is joy even in suffering. 
See, the gospel makes it possible for us to have real joy, even in the midst of the most difficult seasons of our lives. Because we understand that regardless of what happens to us or what trials we may face, none of those trials can ever take away from us the grace that we've received in Jesus. So through Jesus, we have access to a joy that's not in any way dependent on our earthly circumstances, but rather that transcends them all. And when Christians display joy, even in the midst of suffering, man, that gets people's attention in a way that few other things do. Guys, anybody can be happy when things are going well and life is good, right? But when we demonstrate a joy that rises above our circumstances, that makes an impact on people and really gets them thinking about the message that we proclaim. So is your life radiant with a joy that rises above your circumstance? A joy even in suffering? Also, the second example that comes to mind, in addition to the, the joy even in suffering, is love even for our enemies. Do you demonstrate love even toward those who treat you poorly? Do you pray for them and serve them and genuinely care about them? Anybody can love somebody who's just like them or who treats them well. But exhibiting love towards your enemies will make you stand out. As we demonstrate love even toward our enemies, people really begin to take notice. Because who else does that? Right? Like where else in society can you look and see people loving those who mistreat them? Or nowadays who even have different political views than them? You don't really see that. Or at least I have. The main thing I see is people tearing each other to shreds simply for disagreeing with them. So those are two ways in which we can show the supernatural in our lives. Demonstrating joy even in the midst of suffering and love even toward our enemies. I mean, if we'll just live lives like that, I believe it'll function in a very similar way to the miracle that we see here in Acts chapter 3. You know, people can argue with a lot of things, but one thing they can't argue with is a changed life. You don't have to have all the answers to every single question that people might ask or be a brilliant theologian. Just live a life that's radiant with the joy and love of Christ. And people are going to take notice of that and often be open to hear what you have to say. Then as we continue on in Acts 3, we see Peter not only showing the power of God, but also sharing the gospel of God. And perhaps you've heard the old adage, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. Well, with all due apologies to the person who ever said that, I don't believe it's possible to preach the uh, gospel without words. The gospel is a message. 
and conveying that message requires words. And as we look at the words Peter uses to convey the gospel here in verses 11 through 26 of our main passage, there are several features of his message that I'd like to emphasize. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 describe how people were utterly astounded at Peter's miracle and gathered around him to see what had happened. So, of course, he uses that opportunity to preach the gospel. He tells them first it's actually God who accomplished the miracle and then states in verses 13 through 16, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, as I read through these verses, the thing that immediately jumps out to me is how bold Peter is and, and how direct he is about the role of his audience in the crucifixion of Jesus and about the responsibility that they bore because of that. I mean, this guy's not beating around the bush, is he? He describes Jesus straight up as the one whom you delivered over and denied and how you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and how you killed the author of life. You, you, you. And the reason why I believe Peter does that is because people have to be convicted of their sin before they'll realize that they need Jesus. And it's no different today. The reason people have an inadequate view of salvation is because they have an inadequate view of sin. Without an adequate view of sin, the only way you can view Jesus is merely as someone who's going to make your life a little bit better or someone who's going to help motivate you to be a nicer person. In order to fully appreciate the cure that Jesus offers, you first have to understand the sickness. And the sickness that we have isn't just that we make mistakes once in a while or that even we commit a sin every now and then. No, it's that we are sinners by nature, right? The very core of who we are is wicked and depraved. I mean, Paul describes us in Ephesians 2, 1 as dead in trespasses and sins. And David confesses in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's pretty radical, right? Think about that. We've had the seeds of sin within us. Not fully manifested, of course, but they have been within us even from conception. 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle describes it in an especially direct way, as is typical for his writing. He writes, The fairest babe that has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of the family is not, as its mother perhaps fondly calls it, a little angel 
but a little sinner. Alas, as it lies smiling and crowing in its cradle, that little creature carries in his heart the seeds of every kind of wickedness. Whew. That's, that's shocking, right? But that, that is true. That's biblical. And that sinful nature, that the sinful heart that we all have, it remains with us. It manifests itself more and more. You better believe it. And it taints everything that we do. As another theologian has said, the best things which we do have something in them to be pardoned. So understand that we're not sinners because we commit sins. No, we commit sins because we're sinners by nature. And in order to appreciate the rescue that Jesus offers, people have to understand that. And those of us who are Christians have to tell it to them. <laughs> we, I'm not saying you should, you should read the J.C. Ryle quote to them, but I'm saying you've got to tell it to them. We have to help people understand that sin is a heinous thing, just as Peter does here in Acts chapter 3. And it's kind of like agriculture. Before you can reap a harvest, you first have to sow some seeds. And before you sow the seeds... What do you have to do? You have to plow the ground, right? What would happen, do you think, if a farmer tried to scatter seed without first plowing and preparing the soil? Well, even if you don't have any experience in farming, you could probably guess that the seed isn't going to take root very well, right? Even if... Uh, the seed is sown, it won't take root. It won't be able to penetrate hard and compact soil. And so you have to plow. And you have to do the same thing spiritually. In order for the seed of the gospel to take root in someone's heart, you've got to do some plowing by helping the person understand the seriousness and the pervasiveness of their sin. And so that's why Peter places so much emphasis here on the culpability of his hearers for the crucifixion. They, they had to feel the weight of their sin. However, having said that, having given them the bad news, Peter then gives them the good news. Look at verses 17 through 21. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So you see, the crucifixion of Jesus, for which Peter's audience was fully responsible, was actually a part of God's plan from the very beginning. It says that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. His anointed one, his Messiah, who was appointed to rescue God's people, 
would accomplish that rescue in the most unexpected way, through suffering and death. And the result, Peter says, is that your sins may be blotted out. Now, scholars tell us that back in ancient times, the ink that they used to write with, unlike ink today, had no acid content and was therefore able to simply be wiped away or blotted out with a damp sponge. And that's what Jesus does with our sins. See, when Jesus died on that cross, he was doing so in our place to suffer the penalty for our sins. The full force of God the Father's wrath against sin came out, it came down on Jesus. So you and I wouldn't ever have to face it. And then, as Peter's already mentioned several times, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that everyone who repents of their sins and puts their trust in him can experience the rescue that he offers. Just like the crippled man earlier in the chapter obtained physical healing by faith in Jesus, like Peter mentioned back in verse 16, we can all obtain spiritual healing and eternal salvation through faith in Jesus as well. And as Peter explains in verses 22 through 26, this was all predicted in the Old Testament, both by Moses and to Abraham. So this is what's involved in being a faithful witness, showing the power of God, as Peter does in verses 1 through 10, and sharing the gospel of God, as he does in verses 11 through 26. This is why Jesus has left us here. You know, he could have just sent angels to be his witnesses, or even speak to people directly in an audible voice in order to tell them the gospel. And yet, for whatever reason, he chooses to use us. In spite of all our failures and shortcomings and deficiencies, he chooses to use us. And maybe you're here this morning and haven't yet put your trust in Jesus or embraced the gospel message that you've heard today in any decisive way. And yet perhaps you're intrigued by the things you've heard. You know, one thing I love about the narrative of Acts 3 is the way the crippled man asks for one thing and Peter gives him something way better. Look again at verses 3 through 6. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So the beggar asked Peter for some spare change, and Peter instead gives him something way better, telling him to stand up and walk. And that's a beautiful picture of the way Jesus gives us something infinitely greater than we even know to ask for. 
You see, most people, they want way too little of Jesus. Their mind is mainly and often exclusively on the cares and concerns of this world. Things that are so shallow and so temporary. And maybe they're having financial difficulties that they want Jesus to help them with. Or maybe some relational challenges. Or maybe they're battling anxiety and want relief from that. And don't get me wrong. All these things are very real challenges and, and can be very difficult. And Jesus does offer us hope and help and healing in the midst of all these situations. Yet he also offers us something infinitely greater. You may remember me saying that in order to appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus offers, you first have to understand the gravity and pervasiveness of sin. And once you really grasp that, then you can see the glories and the wonders of what Jesus offers. He offers us forgiveness from the guilt of that sin and cleansing from the defilement of that sin and freedom from the bondage of that sin. And not only that, but the greatest blessing isn't even what he saves us out of, but rather what he saves us into. An all-satisfying relationship with himself that brings us a kind of joy that we never even knew existed. What Psalm 16 calls fullness of joy. You know, David writes in Psalm 16, 11, speaking to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So look what he's saying there. In contrast to the cheap thrills and shallow enjoyments that we so often find in this world. In fact, that's all we find. There's a fullness of joy in the presence of God. And in contrast to the fading pleasures that we so often get caught up in pursuing, there are pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures at God's right hand. So going back to Acts 3, just like that beggar ended up receiving more than he ever dreamed possible, Jesus wants to give us something that's beyond our wildest dreams as well. An all-satisfying relationship with God that we'll get to enjoy without any hindrance or limitation for all eternity. And you can have that even this morning with the God who loves you so dearly if you will simply put your trust, your, your full confidence in Jesus to be your Savior.